listening to Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. The August 4th primary is just a few days away, and one of the biggest races to watch in Southeast Michigan is in the 13th Congressional District. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib is running for re-election after a first term that has made her a national household name. Her public battles with President Donald Trump have made headlines since the day she stepped foot in Washington, and her membership in the squad has earned her a dedicated progressive following across the country. But she faces a pretty serious challenge in the primary from Detroit City Council President Brenda Jones. You can hear my conversation last week with Brenda Jones at WDET.org. But right now, I'd like to welcome Rashida Tlaib to talk about her campaign and why she feels she has earned a second term in Congress. Rashida, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. I hope you're well. Yes, I hope you're well, too. All right, so let's start uh, by reflecting on your first term in Congress. It's been a pretty wild ride from uh, my seat. Uh, What do you feel are the parts of the past two years that stand out as reasons that people should send you back to Washington? No, it's been an incredibly challenging journey. I mean, I I think the first day of of getting sworn in, uh, we had to try to, you know, vote to open up the federal government. Uh, We had a number of other challenges throughout the year. As you know, uh, many of my other colleagues will tell you uh, uh, they kind of feel bad for us new class members. They said, <laughs> you know, you all are getting um, many of these difficult um, issues, not only the pandemic, but, you know, throughout the impeachment process, you know, possible war with Iran. I mean, it was just so much over and over again. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the things my residents and who I love and care dearly for, I mean, they believed in the possibility of someone like me serving here is that I've listened to them. I've stayed very close to the ground. I come home every week. I created legislative work groups in the community that birthed uh, the Boost Act, which is the most aggressive anti-poverty legislation in Congress being considered right now. I mean, it's like earning income tax credit on steroids. I've um, been able to really push back and use my role as vice chair of the Environment Subcommittee uh, and House Oversight Committee to really hold uh, companies, corporate polluters like uh, Marathon and others that continue to mislead the public and not be transparent about what they are putting in our air and how it's impacting our waterway and our public health. And I, you know, I am extremely hardworking. And, uh, you know, I think leadership here, one thing, even if we disagree on various policy areas, uh, they have seen my work ethic uh, for the first time ever in the history of Congress, y'all. Like, we got water as a human right fund. I never thought would ever be possible, and I kept pushing and pushing. But we got $1.5 billion uh, in the HEROES Act, and now Leader Schumer uh, and um, Senator Warren and Harris and uh, Murray and Merkley, all of those five very important senators are pushing for that $1.5 billion um, to be a reality. It's historic. I mean, people always talk about shutoffs with utility, right, Stephen, and gas, but they never talk about water, which is, to me, is life. Uh, and we went farther, right? Uh, one of the key things I heard from so many of our uh, environmental justice advocates is they don't want half measures anymore. You know, when they had the lead um, you know, replacement of lead pipes, contaminated lead pipes. People were getting grants for partial replacement, which told people, well, you know, 
I mean, I, I think people need to know, like, no amount of lead is safe. Uh, and so we got a historic amendment, uh, $22.5 billion um, in the uh, infrastructure bill that I got eight Republicans to support me on. So mm. we've been really doing some incredible things to bring things that are happening to my residents uh, hands down. And it's because I've listened to them and I took their concerns to D.C. and I did something about it. Mm. So uh, one of the criticisms of your first two years in Congress is that this national profile that you've gained by by taking really tough stances against the president and 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 in favor of of the issues that that you care about has come at the detriment of the kinds of work that constituents expect from the person who represents them in in Congress. This is something that your opponent has accused you of. Um, uh, and she's not, of course, the only person who has said that. I would, I would love to hear you address that criticism and talk about how, how the national attention is or is not a distraction from the day-to-day work of serving constituents and their needs in, and as you point out, one of the poorest districts uh, in, in the country. Yeah, and I, I think it's really important to understand myths between facts. The fact of the matter is, I actually got work done rooted in community receipts, delivered for my residents. That's the, the irony of it. this myth that's kind of out there that because I've become some sort of leader on environment and water and a leader on pushing back against uh, the hateful agenda by this forever impeached president, that somehow it is t- taking me away. It hasn't. It actually has made the issues that we stand for in the 13 district stronger. And, and look at the results, 35 bills. I mean, I actually got the president that I ran on impeaching to sign a bill into law. Very hard for a new freshman in Congress. Mm. And I didn't get invited to the White House for the signing, and that's okay. <laughs> but it was, uh, you know, protection for retirement pensions for my seniors, those folks that always become uh, targets for these fraudulent schemes. Nobody ever defends them. And it was so important to me to fix that and worked with uh, Republican colleagues to get that done. And, we, you know, we were able to get that signed into law this earlier this year. We, I mean, the four neighborhood service centers throughout the district is extraordinary. I have colleagues from all over in the country saying, can you explain what that approach is? And I tell them, don't call it a district office. It should be a places where you hire social workers. And I have, I have incredible social workers on staff that help people with everyday challenges. That is not about, you know, uh, just, uh, you know, holding meetings. It's actually what happened to you. Okay, let me write a letter on my letterhead. Use the power of the letterhead and talk to your company about reducing uh, the cost for insulin. And that's a true story. I sent it and I said, how are you a company that this is your mission statement? But you're going to go ahead and follow Trump's lead in saying that insulin is not preventive care. Well, it prevents death. And so if you're going to really promote this, this is what you're doing to this family that's now paying $2,800 every month for insulin. That's what I've been doing. And you know what it does, Stephen? Every service center, every broken system that's hurting my family, I hear about it from the service centers. And it translates into the meaningful legislation here in Congress. Things that people haven't talked about. Yes, we're the most diverse class in the history of Congress. I'm so proud to be part of that, but we didn't run to be first of anything, many of us. I know, for me, what I love about this new class is not that we just look differently. We also feel and talk differently about issues that matter to ordinary people. Mm. And I'm so proud to be part of that. And, you know, the myth out there of somehow that, no, it actually has made the issues that we stand for nationally. I mean, 
Water shutoffs is a national crisis. Yes, we may be frontline communities that seem it be hit hard, but 15 Americans across the country. And I broke it down for my colleagues and I show people it's happening in your district. It's happening in your district. This is not a Detroit or Flint issue when it comes to lead uh, contaminated pipelines, but it's an issue in your district. And what I love about my team is we make sure that we make it relevant to my Republican and Democratic colleagues. We show them that this is not a 13 district issue. This is a national issue. But what I'm proud, Stephen, is that we're leading that work our community. We're birthing these movements. We're saying to them, uh, you know, this matters. And let me tell you why it matters nationally and why we need to have federal legislation on these issues. Mm. Uh, If you had to put a number on the kind of federal money you've been able to leverage for your district in two years, it's one of the things that that you hear members of Congress do. What, What would that number be? Well, I mean, with the pandemic, I know, you know, I had I have $10 billion that came for Wayne County communities. You know, I represent the 12 communities in Wayne County, so $10 billion. And I think Executive uh, Evans will tell you, um, I have been working extremely closely with them. I'm making sure they get uh, as much uh, of the COVID relief dollars are coming in that are flexible, that allows them to be creative in how they support, you know, again, Wayne County is the most populated county in the country, uh, in the state of Michigan. Mm-hmm. I also fought really hard and successfully got, you know, 200 billion for hazard pay for frontline workers. And uh, there's a carve out. It's not a terrible carve out. I'm not always for carve outs, but this one in particular was important, which was 300 million to local hospitals located in the district to fight COVID, you know, COVID-19 pandemic, which Mayor Duggan was like, that was a genius idea. This is exactly how we can be able to, to do more testing and, and, and get access to everyone uh, right away. I mean, and, and again, I, you know, really, especially through the appropriations process, um, and colleagues will tell you just alone, just this pet previous appropriations process that came through, they were going to put only about $500 million um, for, uh, again, a pipe replacement. Mm-hmm. You know, we got the one in the infrastructure bill, but I didn't stop there. We now got it up to $1 billion. And by the way, the committee said we have never done this before. But I showed, you know, committee and leadership in the parliament because it's a, it's a very different level kind of process here. It's different from the Michigan legislature where I served for six years. There's all these entities that you have to kind of talk to. And we were able, it was beautiful. It was like a symphony, Stephen. We were able to talk to Gollum, get it done. And we showed them that it wasn't going to increase the deficit, that it wasn't going to do this. It literally was just going to shave it off from here and put $1 billion towards it, which would be much more, um, I think, uh, meaningful for people that are, are, especially local communities right now, that don't have access to those dollars to do full uh, replacement of lead-infested pipes. Mm. So when Council President Jones was on the program last week and I asked her about not living in the 13th District, uh, she accused you of lying about where you lived to get a start in the state legislature based on an accusation that your father made last year saying that you didn't live in Detroit before serving at the state capitol. You said at the time that you complied with the law and moved into the district before you filed, but I want to give you a chance to address that since it was a specific accusation that was made uh, on the program last week. Uh, Stephen, I have lived in every district that I ran in, and in 2010, we showed documentation after documentation, and 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 obviously people verified. That's why nobody talks about it anymore. The fact that I did actually live uh, in Southwest Detroit at the time. I started a block club that year. I, you know, my neighbor, I, I even said to the reporter, you know, uh, you're getting involved in some personal matters with my family, but it's okay. Uh, go talk to my neighbors, go talk to people. That's the thing. I mean, uh, folks, and, and, and that's why I kept getting reelected after that. People knew I was, I was very much, 
everyone knew where I lived because residents would actually come at 10 o'clock at night um, knocking on my door uh, to say, hey, you know, my, wa- my lights got shut off, Rashida, what can I do? Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just all I can do is just focus on the work that I'm doing. And a lot of this um, stuff is distracting fr- from that work, but absolutely complied. Uh, and, and, you know, in 2010, that was the last time I even, you know, folks saw that I was able to produce the documentation and, you know, I actually physically lived there and had a number of people to verify that. Hmm. Uh, another issue that has come up in this race is, is race. Uh, this district was served for many, many decades by John Conyers. It is one of two districts that we have here in the state of Michigan with a majority where whose whose majority is uh, ethnic minorities um, and therefore has the high probability of sending someone of color uh, to Washington. There are a lot of people who say this is a black seat and it ought to be represented by a black person. Uh, you, of course, are Arab American and uh, and part of another significant ethnic uh, group that that lives in that district. But but address the the racial dimension here. Should should this seat be represented by an African American, which is what the majority population of the district is? You know, right now at this moment, I, you know, when I think about the seat, of course, John Conyers was my congressman since I was a little girl, and one of the things that I feel like is he created the space to have you know a non sellout member of Congress that's not going to waver, that's not going to be. Uh, bought or paid for. And one of the things I love is his story of being an activist, bull horn, you know, holding in the streets, and then went to Congress. And I mean, he won only by like, what, a few hundred or maybe less than a couple hundred votes. Yes. Yes, Same thing with me, 900 votes I won and made history. And what's incredible about him is, it's it's interesting, look at look at the history. They They used to come after him as well and say, oh, he's too national. He's getting involved in these other races, trying to get more, you know, people like him elected. And that's what I'm really wanting to get, again, more folks that don't take corporate PAC dollars like me. I mean, there's 60 members of Congress who want to get more. But I think I don't want people to take away that I was born and raised in Detroit. I graduated from Detroit Public School. I, you know, I tell people all the time, I grew up in the most beautiful blackest city in the country, and it has changed my lens. But I do not ever not surround myself with people close to the pain. Because being black in America is, is something you can't understand truly of the trauma and all of the uh, systematic racism that is happening unless you're black. And that's why I surround myself with those lens. That's why I listen to Movement for Black Lives. That's why when protesters say to me, Rashida, come on Saturday and speak up for us, I say absolutely because they're, they're defending the people that helped raise me, right? The teachers that taught me about segregation. All of that is to tell you that I'm actually such an, uh, you know, focus, so laser focused. I'm not selling out and try to elevate um, uh, away from folks that have felt othered and felt so uh, much that government is leaving them behind, that all I can do is just continue to work extremely hard and surround myself with folks that can tell me, no, Rashida, we got to do it this way. We got to do Medicare for all, because look at 40 percent of African-Americans, of the folks that died from COVID were African-Americans. Even though African Americans make up less than 15% of the total population of our state, that, that the system is set up against, and, and you have to have somebody that's not going to be bought, that's not going to waver and come out very aggressive about these issues and really work and listen to the residents. 
I mean, folks call me all the time and say, Rashida, like, I, I can come to you. They're not going to, they're coming to me and saying, please get rid of racist facial recognition technology. Now, finally, people are awakened. What? After we filed a lawsuit? Mm. My residents should never, ever have to file a lawsuit to get people to protect them, especially when even the own federal government study showed that it, facial recognition technology doesn't recognize black and brown faces. But, Stephen, all I can do is just be with them and fight for them and represent them the best way I can through their lens and their guidance. And, and to me, that is so much the legacy of Conyers. Uh, you know, he really, he was so... Um, much connected to the community, and uh, you know, I continue to do the same. Mm. So, so I, I want to ask you about something that the president tweeted about while we were uh, having the show here, and Letitia on Twitter has this question as well. Uh, the, the 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 president is continuing his assault on the idea of voting by mail, and now suggesting that we delay the November election until we can hold it safely. Uh, in person. Letitia wonders if this question got to Congress, how you would vote, but I also wonder what you make of this argument about how we're going to to, to vote uh, yeah. in the fall. So, Letitia, I just want you to know this is a lawless president. Uh, he, he can tweet all he wants, but there's an equal branch of government that's called the United States Congress. And uh, I'll tell you right now, uh, there's no way that we're going to allow him to use this as a political moment because all of a sudden uh, the coronavirus and COVID is important to him. All of a sudden he cares about our safety, but he didn't care about our safety months ago when we were hearing from doctors and nurses and hospitals and schools and communities that didn't have PPE, that didn't have resources. He's still holding money from states and other governments right now uh, and using that, again, politicizing that. All I have to tell you is there's no way we're not going to stop our democracy from moving. If we don't, we're going to have already seen moments of fascism in our, in our country. Um, there are too many of us in Congress that are not going to sit idly by, including myself. And I'm not going to be, uh, you know, people don't like it, but I'm not going to be gentle about it. This is, uh, you know, our self-determination, our rights. And uh, I know and, and trust our Secretary of State in Michigan, Secretary Benson, has done a tremendous job. Working, I'm working all with all my 12 uh, clerks yeah. uh, and really getting information to make sure it's safe. But please know this, Leticia and everybody that might be listening, I, I want you all to know uh, he'll continue to tweet while we'll continue to work for the people. Yeah. He'll yeah. continue to tweet while we push back against his hate agenda and push back against him, you know, focusing on himself and his, his companies versus the public interest. Yeah, okay. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, Always great to have you here. Thank you very much for talking with our listeners about your re-election campaign. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow for a conversation with local author R.J. King about his new book, Detroit Engine of America. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.